I've always felt like there's certain things that don't help you get anywhere or do anything. And some of that is, is like unnecessary worry. Anxiety doesn't really help in any way. You know, prepare for the the worst, but but worrying about stuff that you can't control. And also resentment doesn't help you at all. Like holding on to resentment doesn't help you at, at all. I wrote a song after my first divorce that had the lyrics. It was about the divorce and, and it had the lyrics. That I, I could find so many reasons to hold on to my bitterness. But, but to tell you the truth, I'm awfully glad you came. It's like it, that was every experience you have to think back on like, 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 oh, this was a good experience in the long run. Welcome to Build Your Life by Design, the podcast that will have you start transforming your life, creating real, long-lasting transformation to live your life to your fullest potential. No more being blocked by your own blind spots. It's time to live life on fire without allowing your unconscious limitations to get in your way any longer. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Emery, and together we're going to explore the tools I've used coaching thousands of high performers over 25 years. These are unique tools that go beyond mindset shifts. No more falling back into your old patterns. These tools will create permanent and profound shifts by linking your mind to the emotional memories and somatic energy trapped in your body. By using these tools, I've been able to help Hundreds of thousands of my clients achieve unprecedented levels of success and deep fulfillment in their personal and professional lives. If you're wanting to create more for your life, you're tired of settling, you want to heal, be healthy, and feel energized, and you want peace of mind to live your life out of total abundance and power, then you're in the right place. Because you're going to learn how to master your mind raise your vibration and expand your consciousness. And when you do that, anything you want in life becomes possible. I am so glad you're here. So welcome to Build Your Life by Design podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Emery, and thank you for coming to watch again here with me. And for those of you who are in my tribe, you know that I am 100% committed to people having the most kick-ass life by making sure that they clean out anything that doesn't serve them, anything that gets in their way. And all of my podcasts and programs and coaching is about people living the most fulfilled, amazing life. And Today, I am so excited to have on one of my favorite people who have, who has allowed me to coach him for the past year, Dan Povenmire. Dan, welcome. How are you doing, Lori? Thank you. I'm doing good. Thank you so much for being willing to, to join me today. I just love uh, how your mind works and your creativity and how you share your story. And I just thought my viewers on my podcast and given what I'm up to would absolutely love to, to watch me pick your brain. So let's do that. today. <laughs> so can you start by sharing a little bit and as you have before with me about your story of how you got to the level of success that you've gotten to today and what it's taken for you to get here? Yeah, I, I think it when, when people ask me that question, I usually go back to a moment in college where when I had this super talented friend in college. We were both in, this is before I went to USC, before I was 
in animation at all. I was a drama major at a college in, in Alabama because that was the closest thing they had to a film major. And it was doing shows and doing dinner theater and, and stuff like that. And I had this friend named Danny Conway who was super just like he had that X factor of like if he was on stage, he was all you could look at. You know, he, he was just 100 percent there for every scene. And he, you know, and he was one of these guys that was sort of ugly, but it worked, you know, you know, like like women were just drawn to him and, you know. And and I had no doubt in my mind that he was going to be a big star. And we had this pact that, you know, whichever one of us made it first in the industry was going to give the other one a uh, a leg up. And and then, sadly, he passed away. He, he was in a car accident literally like 15 minutes after the last time I saw him and was killed in that car accident. And I remember... You know, like I went through the, you know, the whole funeral and all that sort of stuff. And and then at at some point I started thinking that, oh, that that might have been my, you know, like I, I sort of felt like I had missed my chance to because I felt like, oh, he's not going to be able to give me a leg up anymore. I'm going to have to do this by myself. Why was it, and I always felt like I'm as talented in as Danny in a different way. You know, I, I didn't have that kind of weird magnetism on, you know, on on stage. At least I didn't think I did. And but you know, but I was like you know on a, on the different side of the of the talent pool. But I felt like I was as talented as Danny. Why was I not sure that I was going to make it? That I was going to make a name for myself. And I and I realized that what it was about Danny is that not only did he have that big X factor, and there were other people who had that kind of charisma on stage and thing, but he like started a club at school and to talk about and to network and all this sort of stuff. And he said once, he said, I am always pushing towards my goal. My goal is to win an Oscar and a Tony and an Emmy and be a household name. Now, that is what I'm shooting for. I may just end up doing summer stock theater in Nebraska somewhere, you know, and, and get paid for it. But I'm still going to be doing this for a living. I am not going, you know, I'm not going to now cry a little bit. <laughs> I love you, Dan. He, he said, I am, you know, but I'm not going to be doing summer stock because that's all I was shooting for. I'm, you know, I am always pushing to, you know, this is where I'm, I'm trying to head. And that way, I'll at least be able to make a living and have a life doing theater because that's what he loved. And I was like, well, that's the, that was the big difference between him and me in my mind is that he had all this drive. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was sort of like letting stuff happen to me because of, you know, how much, you know, the, my, my talent would allow, you know, people would, would come and want to do stuff with me and things like that. Yeah. I was just sort of letting stuff happen to me. And I just, I decided to, that was, you know, having talent was the hard part because a certain, to a certain point, you're born with a certain amount of talent or you aren't. And I'd been like a child prodigy, you know, artist, you know, I started making a living drawing pictures when I was like, 13 years old so you know the and i just said well drive is the easy part you can just wake up every morning and decide and you know you can just decide to have drive you can just decide to push towards 
a goal every morning. And that's just what I did from then on. And it got me out of mobile. I, you know, like, like I've been sort of coasting because I could, you know, oh, it's easy to go to this school that's real close to my parents' house and, you know, and take classes that I'm having fun with and st stuff like that. But what I really want to eventually do is go out to California and, you know, and stuff. And so I applied to USC and Cal Arts and I, and, and I went out to USC and just started really pushing towards that goal. And I think that, you know, the, then I got to USC and I started doing a comic strip daily there, which turned me into a comedy writer in a way that I don't think I was before. You know, if I had to, I had to like write a story that had a, a laugh every four panels and and was taking film classes and and all that and then like at a certain point i dropped out of usc and just started working and i was doing caricatures at olvera street and taking little animation jobs because I'd, I'd been able to, to draw and and wrote a low budget slasher that you know i was just trying to make myself available and known to everybody that i possibly could and i didn't really have a real roadmap to it because the entertainment industry is one of these places that you don't have, there's no clear path to employment. You know, people can only tell you how they got their first gig. And so I was just doing everything I could. And eventually it worked out. Eventually I got, I started working in animation, started feeling like that's where I belong. These are my peeps. And, and I, and then things just worked out for me. Once, once I got in, I just worked as hard as I could all the time because I was I felt so privileged to be able to do something creative for a living. Yeah. You know, that that was just like a dream that that I almost couldn't really believe until it started happening. Yeah, and yeah. so I just, you know, I would obsess on scenes that I was working on, just trying try to make them as good as I possibly could and make them as funny as I could because the stuff's going to last on the airwaves forever. And I just, you know, I just didn't ever want to look back at it and feel like, oh, I should have worked harder at that. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, you bring up such a great point. It's something that is in my programs where I talk about and, and people that I coach is, you know, you shifted from letting life happen to you, which is being a victim and circumstance driven and as opposed to showing up in life and declaring what you want and going after it and having a vision, which I always say is so critically important to not only mastering your life, but feeling like you lived your life kind of on fire and getting to where you are like, man, life is good and fulfilling and right. Yeah. And so was there that was one of the pivotal moments for you in your life that that shifted you getting to your success yeah that that, that's like the big moment the other moment was probably you know I, I was just throwing whatever i could at the wall for years and then there was one moment where where i'd been working in animation because it was easier to get work in animation because the people who hire you or any of these things, you know, like nobody can read a screenplay and tell you, you know, tell you whether it's a good screenplay unless they're a really good screenwriter, you know. But somebody who doesn't, so somebody who doesn't write can't look at the, a script and go, oh, this is great. This guy will be able to do it. Or, you know, somebody who doesn't direct can't look at your stuff and go, you know, this will work. But somebody who doesn't draw can look at a drawing and go oh this looks exactly like what we want it to look like you know so it's easier to prove myself there so i had been doing you know animation stuff on uh, you know along with other stuff and i'd written this 
I'd gotten hired to write a low-budget slasher movie called Psycho Cop 2, Psycho Cop Returns, which was actually going to get made. And But I had been unemployed for like six months. I hadn't really had any real money coming in. I, I Like the studio I'd been doing storyboards for had a big downtime while they were doing post. And and I had let other things sort of just dry up a little bit. And suddenly it was like, oh, I'm not getting the freelance work that I used to get. And I was getting down to the bottom of my bank account. I think I had $200 in the bank. And that was going to be gone at the beginning of the next month. And and I got hired for two things at the same time, literally like within a day of each other. I got hired to write Psycho Cop 2, Psycho Cop Returns. And I got hired to to work on The Simpsons as doing a character layout, which is like main animation poses. And I had never done that in a studio setting, you know, you know, working for somebody else before. And so I I went to work every day learning as much as I could about the animation side of The Simpsons and how to construct those characters. And, you know, like I was just like absorbing all day and then I would come home and have food. And then I would stay up and I would write 10 pages of a screenplay, of a slasher screenplay. And then I would go to sleep and I would do, you know, that was just like, you know, yes, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. <laughs> and, and at the end of that, I was told that I could, if I wanted to, I could direct that movie. But I would have to, and that's all I've ever wanted since I was 12 was to direct a movie. And so somebody was like, suddenly was like, oh, I could actually direct this movie oh you know like that's what i really wanted to do but but i would have had to quit my day job which was now paying my bills and paying my bills better that you know like over the next six months i was going to make a lot more on the simpsons than i would have directing this one slasher slasher movie and i felt like i would have to quit that job and i didn't want to do that and you know and then and also I went to a party at a friend of mine's house from The Simpsons, Swampy, who I ended up creating Phineas and Ferb with. I went to a party at his house and it was like a real party. It was like people just hanging out and having fun as opposed to every live action party I'd been to, which was a networking event, mm. you know, where people were going around and they would quote their resume to you and see if you could, you know, if you could help give them a leg up or, you know, whatever. And and it just felt like so relaxed and you know and I was I was with my first wife then who's an actress and she was like I don't want to go to a party I don't feel like you know come on let's just go make it a beer beers and we stayed all night and afterwards she said you know what that was that was like a real party I haven't been to a real party in forever and I was like I know it was really cool right and suddenly it occurred to me that I liked everybody that I worked with at in animation I felt like we were the same type of people. And I didn't feel, and suddenly it was just like this great relaxed thing. And I was getting to do all the creative stuff that I wanted to do in visual storytelling. But I even sort of had more control over it because I was, you know, because I could affect the performance of an actor by just drawing him differently, you know. And, and so I just decided to let somebody else direct that movie and, and stayed in animation. And because I felt like this is my tribe, this is where I belong. And how much of your journey, what, where, what kind? Let me ask this way: What kind of like mindset and attitude did you adopt through those challenging times, right? And how did it contribute to your 
resilience to keep moving forward. Because I think that's challenging in especially all of us high achievers and gifted people at what we do. The challenging times come, but what what pushes you through? I think I just what pushed me through is I could not, and I often say this to people, I could not imagine doing anything else for a living. So, so I just had to make that work. I didn't want, you know, like there wasn't anything else that I did well. You know, if I could have, you know, fixed a car, maybe then I would have had something to to fall back on it. But I, you know, it, it was like I would rather have been scraping by, doing creative stuff, than doing anything else, and then making a lot of money doing anything else. And so, so that's what I did. I just just kept pushing towards to towards that because. Yeah. You know, I knew that people did it and, you know, I knew that people made that leap into, you know, having a career and, and, you know, I just felt like eventually I'll be able to try to make a living doing this, you know, as it is, I was sort of paying my bills already just doing freelance, freelance art and stuff like that. I would find somebody who'd need a big project and I would work on that for for a bit. So, so I knew that there there was work out there and that I felt like I was, you know, I always had quite a bit of confidence in my ability to draw. So I always felt like, you know, I'm good enough to make a living doing this if I need to. Yeah. And and then I was able to make a living doing that and all the other things I like, you know, so like, like I, I would say that my job is, you know, I love my job because it's doing all the things that I would be doing if I was unemployed. If I was unemployed, I'd be sitting around with my friends drawing stupid pictures and talking in silly voices and telling stupid stories and writing stupid songs. And that's what I do for a living. I do all of those things for a living. And, okay. you know, it's there's the, that whole jack of all trades, master of none. But I've been nominated for Emmys in five of those categories. So, I'm you know, I, yeah. I'm at least doing okay in those. So. I love that. I, I when I work with people and I ask them, please dream into if you could have a dream career and it would be, what are you good at? What have you broken through? What are you passionate about? What means so much to you that you just can't not do it? And I think some of us were born with that. My brother and I both have that. He, I think you know, my brother is a successful pro- producer and musician, and yeah. he would rather eat rice and drink water than yeah. not. It's not possible, right? Just like when I was a little girl, I knew that I was going to be in the world serving people the way that I do today. I mean, it's morphed yeah. over time, but can you, would you be willing to talk about significant obstacles that you faced and how you've navigated through it on a personal level? There, there have been a lot of times in my life, you know, and, and when I met you, I, I was going through a breakup with my wife of 26 years. There, there've been a lot of times where a lot of there's been a lot of sadness and things going wrong in my personal life that have made that what I've ended up do, dealing how I've ended up dealing with that at work is using work as a way to get a you know like like oh if I just go to work and I concentrate on this and concentrate on making this money and when I look back at 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 my career and look back at the funniest and best stuff I've done, a lot of times that stuff is the stuff that I did during the worst times in my life. You know, the because because I used it as a, sort of an escape for that. I haven't run into a whole bunch of, you know, I've been unemployed 
since I started working in, in animation, but not for a very long time. And I, I always felt like I can always get freelance work if I, if, you know, I, I built myself enough of a reputation that I could just put my feelers out and I would, you know, I worked from home just doing freelance storyboards for like six, six months. I don't like it. I don't like working from home. I'm a very social creature. I, you know, I, I would, I would just feel like, you know, like, oh man, I just need to talk to another human being. You know, I need to, you know, my wife would come home and I would say, hey, let me tell you all of the thoughts that I've had all day long that I've not been able to. And you're like, oh, calm down, let's just. Have Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of meeting you, I think it's my experience in working with high achievers, highly successful people is we love our career and what we do in the world so much that that the relationships are the ones that tend to pay the price sometimes. That's very positive. Yeah. What we do in the world comes so natural. And I remember thinking when I started off in my career, why do I feel so much like myself when I'm doing what I do for a living and I'm passionate about it and I know what drives me and I go out in the world and I don't feel the same in relationships with people as I do when I'm operating there. And I started to look at what are the, what are, what's the mindset? What are the beliefs? What are the ways that where I'm operating from that if I just took those and put them in relationship, And when I started to point them there, and that's where my expertise in relationship began, is I just began searching for all of that. And so that, of course, leads us up to 20 years later, I meet you. One of the things I love most about you and your wife, you know, I know soon to be ex-wife, but and yet best friend, right, Clarissa, is you two made a declaration. As hard as that situation was, I mean, I think a lot of couples, you know, in the world will fight and tear each other apart. You two made a declaration and a goal for how you wanted this to look as you moved through the difficult surrendering to what was true for you, right? You guys have grown so much over the years Mm -hmm. and created exactly what you said you were going to create through this, that you are beautiful friends, that she comes over and plays cards with you and you guys are, you know, still talk about the girls and you know, you've talked about planning your thing that you do for, for Christmas next year. And yeah. like, there's no, even through the hardest of feelings, you were sitting and creating intimate moments and talking about those hard feelings. And that takes so much determination and commitment and strength. And you know, you're yeah. getting on the other side of that now. Are you ready to take complete control of your life and become truly unstoppable? Look no further than Build Your Life by Design the podcast that gives you the tools to transform the way you think and create lifelong permanent shifts. Hosted by renowned performance coach, Dr. Lori Emery, this podcast will be your stepping stone for leaving behind the mediocre and stepping into a life that's 100% by your design, not by default. And if you're really serious about stepping into your ultimate purpose and potential, join Dr. Lori for her upcoming masterclass, where she'll be diving deeper into these powerful tools and strategies, personally guiding you every step of the way. Details will be available on her website, buildyourlifebydesign.co. So why wait? Start designing your life by choice, not by chance, with Build Your Life by Design. Can you talk about the mindset that it took for you and the way that you evolved through that over time that was really important for you to get to where you are today? Well, I've I've always felt like there's certain things that don't help you get anywhere or do anything 
and some of that is is like unnecessary worry and anxiety doesn't really help in any way you know prepare for the you know the worst but but worrying about stuff that you can't control and also and also resentment doesn't help you at all like holding on to resentment doesn't help you at, at all and i wrote a song after my first divorce that had the lyrics it was about the divorce and it had the lyrics that I could find so many reasons to hold on to my bitterness. But but to tell you the truth, I'm awfully glad you came. <laughs> so it's like it's that was every experience you have to think back on like, like, like oh, this was a good experience in the long run. It's yeah. and a lot of people really hold on to that bitterness when they're in a relationship that they thought was going to last forever and then it doesn't. A lot of people really stay in that bitterness place. And there, you know, there are reasons that I could be bitter for, you know, I've, I've had, this is my second divorce. And there's, you know, I could certainly find a way to, you know, it'd be very easy to stay in the thing like, well, she said this, but then she did this, you know, or like, you know, there's that kind of thing. But one, it doesn't help you at all. And two, it it ignores the part that you played. Right. And, yeah. You know, it's like, I know that I was not a perfect husband. I was a good husband, you know, I'm a good husband and a good father. I don't, but, but I know that my wife was never, ever trying to hurt me. She was never doing any of these things that sometimes were very hurtful to me, were not aimed at me she was never trying to hurt my feelings she was never trying to make me feel bad she was just trying to live her life and if you look at it from that point of view you know it's, it's like the only reason i can ever hold on to any resentment is if i think somebody did something specifically on purpose to you know either to either deceive or specifically to cause harm to somebody else or with reckless disregard and i don't think in, in any of that that comes into play here i feel like you know th this was all her trying to find what she needed in life and and me not necessarily being that and i'm sorry my experience of you is your willingness to shift from like you said in the beginning it's easy in the pain to want to be a victim to it and, and blame the other person. And then when you shifted to being responsible for what was created, being yeah. accountable for your side and being willing to just move through the emotions and have them without the blaming and resentment and that kind of a thing is when you started to really release torturing yourself and creating mi the misery right that was my experience yeah. of you it was amazing and then creating a real connection and friendship with her through it yeah. so your learning and personal growth in your life how it, what what do you see in how can you share how important that has been for where you are today oh i think that i'm able to I think that I'm able to live in the moment a lot better than I used to be able to. Uh, I, I think that I'm able to enjoy, and I think that's really important, you know, 
So many people who get a lot of success seeking that next high, and or they're working so hard to keep the success going that they're not enjoying the success. And I almost fell into that at a certain point. And, you know, when when the show had been, which Phineas and Ferb the show, is the, yeah. the show I'm sort of famous for. It was a huge hit for Disney Channel, and and we were on the air for six months or, or something like that. And I had told my wife I was working these ridiculous hours for a season. I was I I was going in about eight o'clock or eight thirty in the morning every morning, and then working straight through to eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one in the morning, every single day. I don't think I came home before eleven that whole first season. And then I would, you know, and she would bring the, you know, my daughter in for lunch. So I'd get to see her and, I, and then I would get the daughter all, uh, you know, I would get all this quality time with her on the weekends and I would stay up and do the late night feedings and stuff like that. My life was ridiculously busy. And I told her first season, I said, I think that I could leave here at six or seven and still make a show that would get us a, a second season if that's all I was looking for. But I kept thinking about Danny Conway and like, I didn't want to just be aiming for a second season. I wanted, I told her I wanted to make a show that would change the demographic of Disney Channel because I'd been on The Simpsons when it changed the demographic of Fox. I'd been on on SpongeBob when it changed the demographic of Nickelodeon. I felt like that's the high water mark to do not just a hit show, but it's a show where they talk about how people came to this channel that were never going to come to this channel if it weren't for this show. And and so I was working these hours just because I just wanted it to be good. And I just wanted to rework everything until it was funny enough and stuff. And it still always felt like a little bit of a disappointment when, when I was done with every episode because I couldn't fix everything. And but we'd been on the air for like six months and I'm and I'm and I was driving into work and I was like working on like like I was rewriting a song or something in my head and saying, oh, that doesn't work as well as if I did this. And I like this. And I felt like my brow was all beetled. And, I, you know, like I felt like I always looked like this. Mm. And I realized, you know, and I realized, oh, there's a lot of tension. I had I'm just always working on something in my head all the time. And I'm not, you know, I, I feel like I always look stressed. And then I thought about Swampy. And the la every and now when I you know I, I thought about every time I see him he's happy and laughing and having this great time, and I was like and why shouldn't he he has a big hit show on the air, oh my God I have a big hit show on the air right now and I realized two things I'm driving in my car and two realizations hit me, one is that they had already written articles about how Phineas and Ferb had drastically changed the demographic of Disney Channel. And it had brought boys to the channel, which they'd never been able to get. And, and like the head of the channel had written me a note thanking me for bringing boys to their channel. That was something they'd always tried to do. And they were just never able to do it because, you know, for a variety of reasons. And and so it, like I had already achieved that that high watermark that I, that I wanted to achieve. And then I also realized that every day for the last like three weeks, somebody from Disney had come up to me somebody that I didn't necessarily know, but they had sought me out to tell me how much Phineas and Ferb meant to their family. And they always said the same thing. It was the it was the one show that they could watch as an entire family. And and that, you know, that their 12-year-old and their 13-year-old and their 15-year-old, and they could all decide that this was a show that they, that they would watch. 
and it brought them together. And that's what I just heard that over and over again. I was like, that's a really powerful thing. And I, you know, like I noticed, I, I had this realization of both those things sort of at the same time. And I just started crying in my car, just like, 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 like bursting into this really joyful, like crying, laughing stuff. But it was like ugly crying, not like tearing up, like, like my face was red and their tears going like that. Yeah. like sobbing and having this huge cathartic experience in my car which felt great but i was at my exit and so i'm like driving off the freeway and now i have to drive onto the studio lot like and i'm like trying to like okay i've got to maintain i gotta maintain and i, and I flash my badge to the guy going in and i get down to my parking space and i sit in my car like you know okay here we go okay you know, like looking in the mirror like i had some kleenex in the car and i was able to clean myself up and i was okay yeah as long as i don't think about how well the show is going and how all of my dreams have come true i won't start crying again and i and i was like okay i got it i got it, I got it. I got it. And I, and I go and I get in the elevator and it goes up the first floor and some people get in and goes to the second floor. Some people get out. And the, the person who's left in the elevator with, with me is this is this woman who's a the editor. At, she was the editor at Nickelodeon. I knew who she was. I'm sure she knew who I was, but we never really met or talked at all. Right. And the doors close and she leans over to me and she says, she leans over to me. And she says, I just want to tell you how much Phineas and Ferb means to me and my son. It's the one thing that we can watch together. It's really brought us together. I want to thank you for that. I'm just like, <laughs> that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> Please, God, don't let me burst into tears in front of this woman that I barely know. <laughs> so, it's so, one of the uh, things I love the most about you, Dan, is yeah. A, your, your humility. But that you're, you know, I, I talk to people a lot about as high achievers, I think it's often people don't stop and appreciate, acknowledge and be grateful for what we've accomplished. And I think yeah. it's important. And I love that about you is that you are so heart centered about the biggest, yeah. smallest of things and that yeah. your willingness to stop and be in gratitude and acknowledge because you're just swimming in your own water and it's like asking a fish to identify the water it swims in, right? You're like, I don't know. I'm just doing life the way I want to do life. Yeah. And I remember asking you, when did, like, I asked you what motivates you? And you said, I like making people laugh. And the reason I bring this up is because I think sometimes when I ask people dream into your life and then, and sometimes I think people think, it has to be this big, enormous thing. And when the simplicity, when you said to me, like, one of your highest values is joy and laughter. Yeah. Like, that is what runs your life every day. And I asked you, go as far back as you can remember. Like, when did that, like, ping you? Like, wow, I really like making people laugh and I'm funny. And you went all the way back to a situation with your mom as a kid do you remember that oh, story you told me? i don't remember what that which story that was but i i know that i used to like if if i was in trouble at all if i'd done something that was a little bit I I iffy yeah. and my mom was confronting me about it if i could make her laugh about it then i could yeah. get away with it yeah but and, you know, and i think so, that's so beautiful dan of like yeah. going through something because i tell people when we work with like knowing yourself it's a moment that's impactful and meaningful to you and if you don't judge it like look at what you created out of that 
what some people could judge like a kid being manipulative, right? Yeah. But it's so awesome that you're like, man, I really got something here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Out of getting out of trouble with good. your mom and making her yeah. laugh. Yeah. Right. It's and it, and it was and like a lot of that getting out of trouble was sort of like letting her see my side of what what had happened in a way that also made her laugh. So yeah. so it wasn't like, you know, I, I wasn't just like, hey, telling her a joke. Yeah. You know, and trying to distract her. I was showing her a different way of looking at things that would ma make her realize that the situation was really kind of funny. Yeah. You know, and her perspective. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I wasn't like trying to blind her to what was going on, but I knew that, that, that if I could get her to see, and that's what most of comedy is like letting somebody see something from a different perspective. Yeah. So and it's such a huge thing, right? We talk about how all of our perspectives are just that. And yet, instead of being right about it, can we shift and see different perspectives? And you're yeah. writing from different characters is so brilliant, right? Yeah. And seeing from different perspective. So when you reflect on your achievements, what legacy or ins or impact is the most important to you, both personally and professionally? I think, you know, there there have been a lot of people, you know, we when I say we, I mean like comedy writers tend to feel like we don't do anything real for a you know like 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 there's this whole thing about people who write comedy for tv that we're just tv comedy writers we're not curing cancer we're not doing anything really great for the world you know we're not like a doctor we're not like you know we're not saving you know saving these lives but i've had i don't know 20 or 30 people tell me about how phineas and ferb or Family Guy or SpongeBob or something that I worked on or created saved their lives. That that they had been in a really dark place. They had been, you know, in a place where they didn't know that they would make it through. They thought that you know they'd been suicidal or they'd been agoraphobic or you know. And I and to have people say that to me and then like okay, you know, how did that work? And and just realized that the one girl had 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 a really horrible experience. She had a very traumatic experience, and she had become agoraphobic, and she had stayed inside her house, and had tried to kill herself. And she had friends staying with her on suicide watch, and she it was the darkest she'd ever felt, and she felt like like she was just in this hole, and she couldn't get out of it. And they and one of the kids, one of her friends, turned on family guy when it was on adult swim and it, it was one of my episodes and and she said that she laughed out loud for the first time in like a year and a half and she says, said it made her feel human it made it sort of connected her to the world again and she started living every day to to watch family guy on adult swim every night and then when she got the DVD set she looked up that first episode and she wanted to contact me <laughs> see this is the kind of stuff that makes me cry. And, and you know, and that she slowly, she was able to recover from all of that, but it really started with the sort of this gift of laughter. And I've heard so many people like, like when, when we announced that the show was ending and, you know, we're doing more of it now, but we we're doing a, a series finale. When we announced that there was this outpouring of love on, on Twitter where people just like all shared those kind of stories 
where you know like so many were like oh i love this show i'm so sad everything but some people are like this is the show that i've heard this a bunch of times this is the show that got me through chemo with my child kids who are going through through cancer treatment and would have to sit there attached to the horrible machine and stuff and they would just put on phineas and ferb and that would make it okay and that you know like like it's the thing that got me through ptsd it's the thing that got me through my parents divorce it's the thing you know like that's what i think is the takeaway from making people laugh all over the, the the world and i tell my friends who are also comedy writers i always tell them that story when they poo what it is we do and it's like like well yeah but you are you are making people laugh on a global scale and you know like if these are the stories that i've just heard somebody who's actually been able to tell me yeah. think of how many thousands of other stories there are like out there maybe millions yeah. you know of of people who have really been helped by being able to laugh and to be you know transported somewhere else so that's what i think is the noble aspect of what we do when we make people laugh yeah and and I, I have to bring it home on a personal note because I think it's important is you've also brought that into your relationship with your daughter and she does yeah. this with you. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about your relationship with her? Because it's beautiful watching the two of you together. It's yeah, really we have a, a great time. Both of my daughters are very creative and 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 one of them is the lead voice on Hamster and Gretel, which you know, which wasn't what I was trying to do but it just worked out that way because she did some temp voices for me and everybody fell in love with her voice on it and i was like oh okay i guess she's gonna do this and i always felt and we record right here she sits she sits right here i've got you know i've got like a high quality microphone here and we record her stuff here on the weekends and and we just have a great time together and and she's always trying to make me laugh while we're doing it and she is you know and and you know i i tried to prepare her for the fact that she, there was going to be a lot of nep nepotism negativity when it went went on the air and then there wasn't which i thought, thought you know it's like i didn't see any nepotism comments a, a, at all and my editor said well you would have seen them all over the place if she hadn't been good it just happens right. that she's good you know and and i think that she always felt like you know well you know i've got this job because my dad's the creator of the show but then she just got nominated for an emmy for her voice work in the show, yeah. in the show which had nothing to do with me yeah. and and i i love that for her and when i when i told her that she'd like you know i called her on facetime from the office and and told her that she had been nominated and and she just like her whole face melted and she was like so proud and crying and, and and stuff but both of the girls are super creative my my older girl sings songs for the show periodically and she was the same sort of thing she would do the temp vocals for me and then the composer at one point said is this alex and i said yes yeah. like we should use her why are we not using her it's like i wasn't because i cast my other daughter as the lead i didn't want to like be pushing my luggage like, no we should have her do it so she sings songs for us now and it's just great because they grew up loving phineas and ferb and knowing that's what i was doing and like so hungry for every new episode so i felt like i was helping i'm just you know going to work and entertaining my daughters you know it's like 
oh, this is going to make my daughters laugh in a year when we're done with this episode. And, I think uh, what you bring in, Dan, is you so, you're so authentic. And I think authenticity with equals and not trying to be something that you're not, right? Even in the way that you're a dad, you're just authentic and in relationship with them, right? And, I, I, and you know, I, I love to share that you also allow them to be them. Like, wh what are your limitations and how do we just work around, right? You've been so accepting and understanding of where they operate from and what their challenges are. Because I know in parenting, you've had some also significant challenges over the years. But you are like the poster child to me of just be true to yourself, live in your passion, be willing to dream big with no evidence you're going to get there, right? And then and being authentic and then bringing that into your parenting and watching what's happening with your daughters because of that, you know, and of course, your wife is such a beautiful soul as well. But watching even the stories you shared with me about your youngest, where she seems to be so accepting of herself and living into her gifts because yeah. you do that. And that's, it's just so beautiful to watch that because I've worked with so many high achievers where they're so busy achieving that not only their relationship falls off the map, but they're disconnected from their children yeah. and your commitment to them has been amazing has it been hard to balance over the years family and yeah work? yeah you don't want to be you know the, the balance is i don't want to be the kind of father that's not there you know and, and going to their softball games or their you know or you know when they have a concert at school you know it's like i don't want to be a father who's not connected to my children but i also don't want to be an artist who doesn't obsess on their art you know, the, the, <laughs> so it's a very delicate balance, but really I always try to put priority on the kids and, and the, you know, the good thing about having a, a lot of success is that you end up with a team of people you can have do some of the things that you would be normally doing. And, and the, you know, like learning how to delegate that has, you know, is I think the best thing you can do for your family situation is, is so that you're not saying, oh, I need to fix this. I need to do this. And you know, like, now I, I can just, you know, now I have a team of people that I feel like, oh, I can give this to Kyle and he'll make this work right. And I can get home for dinner tonight, you know, and, but, you know, I still then, I also sleep less than everybody else. So, you know, I have three hours in the day that I can go sleep in or dead. <laughs> with it when everybody else is asleep. Yeah. So yeah. it works. And and one last question, and, and I thank you so much for spending this morning with me doing this. Who have been your biggest heroes or mentors in your life? I there've there've been a lot of showrunners that I've worked with that that taught me <laughs> sometimes how not to do something and sometimes how to how to do something. But the ones that I ended up working with for the longest were the ones that that allowed people to feel like they're part of the show, and that's what I've always, you know, I've always tried to do. Joe Murray at uh, Rocco's Modern Life just gave us sort of free reign. And said, "Here, here's a story in two pages. The show doesn't have to look like this story if you can make." better or funnier and you know as, as long as you make me laugh in two weeks when i see it 
then that stuff is going to stay in. And, you know, is, is, I want this to be your show as much as, as my show. And that's what I always tried to do on Phineas is make sure that everybody knew that, that if they had input that they thought they could make it look better. You know, I was trying to be positive, even when I'm giving negative notes, it's not like, Oh, that sucks. Redo it. It's, it's like, okay, I see what you're going for there. Maybe this would be a better way to get there. You know, it's it, it's like, it, like try to make people feel heard and seen and be part of that. And that was Joe Murray. That was Craig Bartlett on, on Hey Arnold. That was Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy just gave me this free reign to, you know, like once, once he realized that our senses of humor were basically identical, he sort of just gave me free reign and said, well, I'm going to put you in, for, in charge of all the visual gags that's that that we bat around in the writer's room and then we don't come up with anything as good as what you're going to do anyway so i'm just going to let you do that and you know i I think letting people do what they what they do best and and feel heard and seen from is something that i've gotten from a lot of the showrunners that i've worked worked with and and i've also seen people who don't treat people with a lot of respect and stuff like that and and I was like, oh, I don't want to work with that person anyway anymore. I don't want to be that guy. I want people to want to work with me and still get a good show show out, which is, I think, much easier than being the jerk. Yeah. So, so I think it works. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for your time sure. this morning. Thank you for sharing your heart always. And thank you for the sure. honor of the relationship that we have built for the last year. I absolutely adore you, love you, and appreciate you. Thank you for joining me on Build Your Life by Design podcast. Remember, you have the power to design your life exactly how you want it to be. Live life with power and mastery. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, join us for our upcoming Keys to Mastering Your Success. The details are available on our website at buildyourlifebydesign.co. Until next time, keep designing your life by choice, not by chance. Put yourself firmly in the driver's seat of your life. See you next time.